The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. But I know we'll meet again. Some sunny day. Some of your texts coming in this afternoon, says Jay, first time I've ever texted, but felt compelled to let people know that although our federal governments past and present have not done right by our veterans, they have done a phenomenal job at the Juno Beach Centre and at Vimy Ridge. My father fought on D-Day, flying six sorties in a typhoon fighter plane, and it's almost impossible for me to understand what these men on this day must have gone through. Keep your memories coming. Keep your thoughts coming. If you have a story you want to share with me at 630-630, and David says, Jay, my father and his father went to sign up for the D-Day launch from Napanee, Ontario. Father was 17, grandpa was 38 because father's only sibling had died at age 7 from a broken arm followed by gangrene six weeks later. They were turned down since the likelihood of death would have left my grandmother alone with the family business to operate. My other father fought the entire First World War War, was mustard gassed, returned home to father 10 kids. His eldest son, who became Judge Irving Cochran, fought Rommel's troop in North Africa, shooting many Germanies. He passed a few years ago at age of 97. Thank you for the memories, and I appreciate that. And, of course, so many families have so many questions about what their loved ones went through in the war, and now they might get some of the answers thanks to something called Project 44. It's a labor of love. That's that three Canadians have undertaken that's going to allow you to access information in an easy-to-use format. It was launched today and offers you a chance to access documents normally reserved for historians. And one of the men behind it all is Nathan Keeler, and he joins me this afternoon, I believe, from France as well. Hi, Nathan. Hi. Where are you calling? Where, where did we get a hold of you today? Yeah, so I'm in uh, France. In Normandy. So, were you at the ceremony this morning? Yes, I was. So, tell us, what was it like? What was going through your mind this morning? Yeah, it was a fantastic ceremony. It was a beautiful day. It was very well done, and it was, we we're very honored to be there today. Tell us about Project 44, Nathan. Tell us about uh, how this all came together. Uh, where where did it all start? Uh, it started at the uh, Library and Archives in Canada when my colleagues and I were looking at uh, original maps from the Second World War and we said, you know, we have a great way of uh, bringing this to the public to show them uh, what the uh, Normandy campaign was about. So how are you putting this all together so that mere mortals with no idea of what they're looking at can understand? Yeah, so we're going to take all the units that were in the uh, 1st K Army and just put it on a basic simple web map with a time slider and uh, Canadians will be able to watch these units as they fought through 87 days of combat, and then they can click on those units and read the war diaries. So it just answers uh, you know, a couple of basic questions. What, when, and where? That's it. So if someone knew the regiment uh, that uh, their, their loved one was with, you could find it and then follow that path through where, where, those, where those guys were on, on different days? 100%. So we've just taken these war diaries, which are often uh, uh, locked away, and we've digitized them so they can stay locked away and be protected. But now people can read those stories. Uh, we're offering 
Canadians an opportunity to see things they don't normally get to see. So tell me about, uh, you met one of, I think he was a uh, retired warrant officer, George Fouchard. He was a 90, 97 years old, served as a corporal and a cartographer during the Normandy campaign. How did uh, you meeting him and his involvement and his information help you along with this? Yeah, it was just really inspiring to know that he was uh, working on these maps um, that were affecting the Battle of Normandy. And just being, having the opportunity to talk to him was fantastic. Uh, we both did the same thing in the military, so we had a great connection together. Yeah, you are. Uh, are you still in or are you retired now from the Royal Canadian Dragoons? That's right. So I'm retired from the Royal Canadian Dragoons and uh, I'm mostly focusing on this project now. Mostly focusing on this project. So you served in Afghanistan, Nathan. Um, you know, as part of this, have you had a chance to tell your fa- your children, your family, your story in hopes that, you know, 30 years, 40 years, 75 years from now, they're not going to have to go back and depend on somebody else? Yeah, so I haven't told them that story yet. And it's going to be uh, you know, a little difficult to tell, as I think it is for any veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to go back and we're going to try and capture the story of Afghanistan in a unique way that I think is going to be worthwhile while the uh, veterans of Afghanistan are still relatively young. Yeah, that uh, that would be that would be ideal. So uh, Project 44, I believe, launched today. Where can people find it? Yeah, it's easy. Just go to project44.ca and the first button you see web map and you can go right to our uh, project. All right. And finally, um, how long are you in Normandy for? What's next up uh, over the coming days? Uh, yeah, so we've been here for a couple of days and tomorrow we're, uh, we're heading back to Amsterdam and we're getting on a plane back to Canada. Okay, Nathan, curious to know what you, uh, what you thought. I saw some video today and, you know, when the, some of the old vets were, were being wheeled in or walked in, people were, you know, clapping and cheering and tears rolling down their face. Must have been emotional for you as well. Well, yeah, it was certainly fantastic to see these veterans out here and, uh, um, yeah, it was a great opportunity. All right, Nathan Keeler, thank you for joining me this afternoon from Normandy, France. I appreciate you taking the time at uh, this late in the evening for you, Nathan. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much. Hey, stay away from the Calvados, by the way. <laughs> it's dangerous <laughs> stuff. Drop me a line at 6.30, If you have a story that you want to share today, maybe about a loved one at D-Day in World War II, uh, that will be the focus for the next um, hour, 90 minutes of this show. Wanted to play this for you today. It was a powerful interview, 93-year-old Second World War veteran, 93 years old, Second World War veteran Ian Christie spoke with Ryan Jesperson this morning. He was part of the Canadian delegation that landed in Normandy on D-Day. He drove one of the landing crafts onto Juno Beach on June 6th, 1944. Here is his story in his words. I was 18 years old back then. Everybody was a volunteer in the war. Uh, my brother was in the Air Force. Dad was in the Army. Mom was in the Red Cross. 
so I joined the Navy. We, uh, we went there. We were to be trained by the British on the British idea of what landing craft operations should be. And uh, so we spent six months being taught how to deal with all kinds of currents and that. I guess the uh, English Channel is just full of currents that are contradicting. <laughs> we were not aware of anything until we, that day. I'll tell you, there's no way to prepare for it. It just is something you do. You were trained so well that you did things automatically that had to be done. And uh, you didn't even think about it. You just did it. Higgins' boat, the one I was driving was a 32-footer. And it could carry 30 men. And two, two, uh, one non-com and one officer. Uh, the officers were always a problem anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> there, there it is. <laughs> what can you do about it? And uh, everybody was told they had to sit down. Now, why they had to sit down? Because the Higgins folks was made of plywood. And uh, you didn't want someone shooting at it. So if they're sitting down there, they're below the gunnels. No one can see them. And if they don't see them, they don't shoot at them. And that's the way we got them in right close to the beach. When we gave the signal, they came up on one knee, loaded their rifles, and got ready to leave the landing craft. By the way, they didn't go right onto the beach. They went into the water. On the, just on the edge of the beach were landmines. So they were in the water, and that's why we had to go in at low tide so that you could see these, and we stopped just short of those. We had bombers all night and all day, as a matter of fact. Uh, I was on, during the evening, uh, we were on the Prince David, uh, which was a troop ship, and our landing craft were mounted on the side of it. And uh, consequently, we lowered our landing craft to deck level. You always see them going down nets uh, in at sea level. The water was so rough on the English Channel at that point, that day, that they decided to load at deck level. So they just stepped off the deck into the boat. Very quiet. No one said a word. Everybody got, we were all thinking of ourselves and what, would we make it or not? You know, you don't talk about those things. You just exist with them. And uh, there was no sound at all from the boat. Uh, it could have been uh, dummies in it for all I, or you could see. <laughs> the loudest voice in it happened to be mine because I had to give orders. They were arranged all the way to about, uh, oh, I'd say 26 years of age, the Army boys. I had the Winnipeg rifles, and uh, they would range anywhere from 18 to 26. What I was thinking about, <laughs> uh, why was I so stupid to get in the middle of this? <laughs> We weren't taking fires as such. The enemy 
we had uh, machine guns. We had a machine gunner beside us on each boat and machine guns. And their job was simply to keep the enemy's heads down behind the, their protective uh, whatever pillboxes, you name it. And um, so they did a good job of that. We made it all the, the beach without a shot being fired at us outside of the heavy artillery. Now, they had uh, they had artillery, and of course, it splashed all over the place. It did not, we were lucky, it did not hit any of our boats. They would have uh, been splintered to nothing if they had. But uh, uh, I think as soon as any guns opened up, the Air Force responded. And now that basically was a big saving uh, for us. I was at the east end of Juno Beach, or pardon me, the west end of Juno Beach. And they were, we were a big line. What happened was we went through an outer minefield, which uh, the engineers had cleared a path through the middle of. And uh, we went through line ahead on that. And then uh, when we got on the, on the inside of it, we spread out in line abreast and went in towards the beach. Now, as I say, everybody was kept their heads below the gunnels. So we did that. We got in to the beach. Now, how did we miss those mines? They were in the water. And uh, they were in, it was low tide, so we could see them. How did we miss them? Well, we had a very clever junior lieutenant who uh, was about 21 and really wet behind the ears still. He came up with an idea. Put an anchor in the rear of the ship. When you get close, throw it overboard let out a line until you're right up to the up to the departure line, as we called it, and then snub it down. That held the boat off the mines. Wow. And that's why that's why we kept from blowing ourselves up. <laughs> you you give the order for the troops to move. This this uh, this. Uh, just part, oh boy, get off the boat. The crew stays with the boat. It has to be used again, you know. We did three trips, two of them with the supplies and one with the Winnipeg rifles. Now, the Winnipeg rifles were the assault, one of the two assault teams. So we were first to get there at the beach. So think how we were feeling all the time. We were scared out of our wit. And uh, by the time we hit the third one, everyone was, everything was cleared up. We could go right up onto the beach with our landing craft if we wanted to. It might surprise you that we didn't think about anything, really, at the time. We just simply did. Uh, if you thought about it, you might as well give up the ghost. And uh, so we just did. Now, 75 years later, Yes, you're thinking about it because it's over and, and uh, you, 
the answer is, what a stupid SOB I was to do that. I, when I returned home, I was uh, mm. 20 years old. We all, most of us that were in the war, particularly in my family, it was true too, suffered from uh, a melody known as uh, war jitters or something like that. Drank too much, uh, were too jumpy. A lot of us couldn't hold jobs for very long. Uh, like I, I must have gone for the first uh, two years I was out of the service. I must have gone through 10 different jobs. Just couldn't hang on. And you had trouble going anyplace. Uh, it just, your whole thought pattern was crazy. The military medical wouldn't recognize it at all. They, they, any kind of stress was didn't exist. Uh, why? Why should the person be stressful? It's just a war. <laughs> and diddly that we sort of had had to do it on our own. My brother, who flew seventy-five missions over Germany. Uh, he disappeared for five years. And we, Dad and I call it the five-year drunk. <laughs> but uh, he, he, he had troubles, too. Dad, he, he was an infantry officer. And uh, he became an alcoholic. So that's, that's what happened to us. I didn't become an alcoholic because I didn't like the taste of it. <laughs> so, but uh, I had other problems too. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and things like that with bad dreams. Well, we had over a million of us over there, so there you go. So there you go, the amazing story of 93-year-old Second World War veteran Ian Christie. He spoke with Ryan Jesperson this morning. He was part of the Canadian delegation that landed uh, at Juno Beach on D-Day. He was in the Navy. He drove one of the landing crafts onto the beaches on June 6, 1944. He talks about those nightmares that he had. He went on to say that it took 50 years, 50 years before they stopped.